0: My family wants to welcome everyone here and to wish you all a merry christmas and a wonderful new year i pray that the lord would bless all of you and that you would really grow in the knowledge of jesus christ and his grace this year and so it's been an honor to be preaching the word to all of you Uh, bob and i as you know do teach normally verse by verse through the scriptures however periodically like on easter and christmas we will do topical message and Topical messages, and that's what we have here this morning. So today I want to tie our topical message into a theme that we've been looking into lately in our studies in Matthew, and that is the essential importance of the apostolic word. And so today, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, I want to remind you of something that's fairly obvious yet important, and that is none of us we're actually there to see Jesus Christ born, or for that matter, none of us personally witnessed any of Christ's earthly miracles, and yet we believe. Now, we know his deeds and his miraculous works through the scriptures. And so today, I want to focus on how pagan Gentile magi from Babylon came to know and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. From the written prophecies of the Old Testament in fact I've always been curious of a couple of questions regarding the nativity that I wanted to answer for myself and for you my lovely congregation and so today we're going to be answering two questions number one why did God supply angels and shepherds to sing of Christ's birth most modern scholars today that are good in the book of Luke really recognize that indeed the angels depicted in Luke 2 were supplied as an angelic choir by God. So we'll be looking at to the reason as to why he did so. Number two, we're going to be answering the question, how did the Magi from the East know to come and worship Israel's Messiah? How could pagans from Mesopotamia know that the Messiah was born, let alone come and find him in order to worship him? And as we're going to find out They did so through the word of God. And so we're going to conclude today that the word of God must be primary to each of us if we want to truly know the Lord Jesus Christ, who God is, and to have the forgiveness of sins. So let's begin. I want to start with our first nativity scene and turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We already read some of this here today. Again, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading from the ESV version luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 give you a moment to turn to it pull up my pointer in the meantime here notice the text says in those days a decree went out from caesar augustus that all the world should be registered this was the first registration when quirinius was governor of syria and all went to be registered each to his own town And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, dear ones, the first thing I want to point out in this text is notice in verse 10 that the angels mention to these shepherds that indeed they were going to give good news. Now, the term good news there for them to bring good news is literally the the Greek verb ouangelizomai. And you can hear the root there for Uangelion, which is our term evangelical. An evangelical is a gospeler. It's a good newser. That's who we are. We're to be about the good news. But I want you to realize that at that first Christmas in the Roman-dominated world, the good news that the pagans celebrated was not about the birth of Jesus. It was about the birth of the emperor. At the time... Caesar Augustus was then the emperor over the Roman world, and he was therefore known as the Lord of the world who brought the people their peace. And they would sing him praises, and they would honor him as the one who brought peace to the world. Now, many of you have heard, of course, of the Pax Romana. That means the peace of Rome. And so I think there's a bitter irony in that here you have the Lord of glory, the Lord of peace who was born, And yet the vast majority of the world are singing praises at that time, not to the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Lord of peace, but to the Roman emperor. That was their deficient good news. Sounds somewhat like what we are going through in our day and age. How many today are really worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ? So many worship something else, something in the creation rather than the creator. Now, the story continues in Luke two thirteen through 14. Notice it says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Dear ones, notice here in blue, you have a multitude of other angels joining this one. They are singing praises to God for him sending forth the Son. And so we can conclude from this that, yes, the sending forth of the sun is something that brings great honor and glory to God. In fact, notice in verse 14, we see what they are crying out. Notice they say, glory to God in the highest. Does everyone see that? Now, what does the term glory mean? Well, there's two ways that glory is used in the Bible. Sometimes glory refers to the visible splendor that's associated with God at his theophanies. When he shows himself, and even just the smidgen of who he shows himself to be in his theophanies, he never shows us the totality of who he is. There is splendor or glory associated with that. But the second way that glory is used is how it's being used here is where beings within his creation ascribe great value and honor to God. In fact, if I were to describe what it means to give God glory, it means to give him the weightiness that is due him all of you know that if a bunch of soldiers are together in their barracks and the commanding officer comes in they snap to attention now they might might not even particularly like their commanding officer and yet there's a weightiness to his rank well there's no one that outranks the holy one of israel the creator of all things and so he deserves all weightiness all honor all respect and that's exactly what the angelic host is giving to God for the sending forth of the sun. The sending forth of the sun demonstrates the weightiness of God. That's what we see here at Christmas time. Now, notice added to that, they say, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And Skip did a good job of noticing there's a difference between the ESV and the NESV, which get it right, and the King James Version, which gets it wrong. The King James Version lets you think that, well, God is pleased with every man. That's not what this text is saying. Do not come away today at Christmas time thinking that God is just generically pleased with every single human being because he sent forth his son. He is not. He is in particularly pleased with only some. Notice it says on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This peace that's being described is not just a lack of enmity or warfare between men. That's certainly important. The peace that's being delivered here is a peace between God and man. That no longer will certain people, men and women, be enemies of God, but they will have forgiveness of sins. But it's not for everyone. It's for those with whom he's pleased. That's the elect. That are those who will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for it's only by faith alone that anyone will be pleasing to God. That's what we see here. Now, I think it's also very interesting. Oops, I've lost control of my computer again. It's also, I think, very interesting to note that at the time that Jesus was born, more than likely millions of people in the pagan world were singing praises For the good news of the birth of Caesar Augustus. And it was in this milieu that God supplied his own choir. So pagan and hostile to God is the pagan world, they won't even sing of the true Lord's birth. And so the Lord had to supply his own choir. It's also interesting to note that here we have the angels, which are the pinnacle of God's creation, according to Hebrews chapter 2, 7 through 9. They are even higher than men. Remember, Jesus in his incarnation, as he becomes man, it says in Hebrews 2 7 and 9 that he was made a little lower than the angels. So I want you to think about how the angels are the pinnacle of God's creation. So at the very highest, God has acquired that is giving him praise. But we also see that at the very lowliest, the lowliest of men, shepherds, also. Give him praise and that's where we pick it up here in Luke two twenty. Now remember at this point in the narrative The shepherds have already seen jesus and they're coming back to their fields and notice what it says It says and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising god For all that they had heard and seen As it had been told them Dear ones think about these shepherds these shepherds were probably The shepherds who took care of the flock that served to be the sacrificial system for the temple in Jerusalem. So these shepherds were taking care of the very animals, ironically, that were the sacrifices in Jerusalem. Now they see and witness and praise God for the ultimate sacrifice who comes. The shepherds here would have been the lowest on the social status spectrum of all people in Israel Why? Because these were the men who often missed the religious festivals. They missed going to temple. They missed the religious services of Israel because they had to keep constant watch upon their flock. And so they were often looked down upon. And yet notice they came to the very same conclusion in purple that did the angels. They were glorifying and they were praising God. Dear ones, the very first Christmas, God used the very highest of his creation, the angels, and the very lowliest of men as his choir to sing praises about the sending forth of the Son. And so I think very clearly in this very first Christmas, we should see a very stark contrast. The contrast is found between the Roman world in the biblical reality. Notice in the Roman world, the good news, again, they're Evangelion, they're evangelical, their gospel was what? It's about the birth of the emperor. Now, I'm not claiming that the biblical writers merely copied what the pagans are doing. That's not my claim. That's not what the Bible shows us. No. What I'm showing you is the pagans in a satanic distortion distorted the biblical reality. The biblical reality is the good news really is only about the birth of God's son. That's what ultimately it's about. And so in the Roman world, all of these pagans, the pagan minions by the thousands had choirs that would sing praises to the emperor. Because if you don't know God through the scriptures, what you end up doing is worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator who is forever praised. That's what you do. You sing of something in the creation, whether it's the emperor or anything else. But you don't worship and serve and give glory to the Creator. So what God did is He supplied, in sinful humanity's rebellion, He supplied His own choir. He supplied the angels on high and the lowliest of shepherds to sing praises of the Son. That's the reality, the very first Christmas. Now, dear ones, think about in both the sending of the angels and the angels appearing to these shepherds, you really have direct interventions of the supernatural realm into ours, but we only know that because of the scriptures. We know of this supernatural intervention, not because we were there, but because we know it through the scriptures. And so I want to finish the rest of this message today by our, using our second nativity example so that you and I will know that we have to know Jesus Christ and God only through the scriptures. That's how we're going to come and to truly worship and find God. So the next nativity that I want to look at is found regarding the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. And the question I'm going to be answering here is how did these men find out about Christ's birth and come to know and to worship him? Now, let me show you Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Notice what it records. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, dear I want you to notice here, first of all, oops, i got to pull up my pointer. In the very beginning, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was during the days of Herod the king. We know historically that Herod died in 4 B.C., So what that means is that Jesus was born prior to that, perhaps as early as 6 BC. So by the time the magi come, Jesus is one or two years old. That's when they find him. Now, let's focus on what you see in red. Notice these are magi from the east. Now, the term magi comes from magos, and what these are is think of them as religious astronomers. They are engaged in astrology, in fact, let me quote to you from a scholar named R.T. France. He's one of the leading scholars who understands what these magi were. Let me read to you what he says. France says this. He said, "Quote: The magi originally was the title of a Persian priestly caste system who played an important role in advising the king, and it was applied more widely to learned men and priests who specialized." In astrology and the interpretation of dreams then he goes on to say these magi were found all over the roman world but were especially associated with babylon and he says that is why the term the east more than likely means the area of babylon so dear ones what you had was a bunch of astrologers who knew these religious texts of the world they were like religious astronomers And where were they from? Well, they were from Babylon. Now, what's so shocking is they arrive in Jerusalem. Why did these men arrive in Jerusalem? Well, they assume that if there's going to be a king born to the Jews, where does royalty show up in Jerusalem? In fact, I would think that they're thinking that the son is going to be born in the household of Herod. That's why they go there first. Now, notice their question, who are they looking for? They ask the question in verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They're looking for the king of the Jews. Why weren't the religious leaders of Israel looking for the king of the Jews? Why did these pagan magi from Babylon have a leg up on them? Now, notice here, we find out in blue an explanatory phase. Anytime you see a four, ask, what's it there for? It tells you. This is how they knew To look for the king of the Jews. It says for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now very important interpretive point. When we see the phrase in the east realize that that modifies this entire clause. We saw his star. In other words it's not that they saw the star in the east. It's that they were in the east when they saw the star. They were in Babylon. And where did the star come? It came from the west. So the idea is that they saw the star while they were in the east. Why? Because that's where they came from. And notice what did it lead them to do? They came to worship him. Brothers and sisters, here we have pagan, Gentile, Babylonian astrologers who are putting the religious leaders of Israel to shame. They're looking for Messiah, and the religious leaders of Israel, they weren't. And the question is, why? It all begs the question, how could pagan magi from thousands of miles away in Babylon know about the birth of Israel's Messiah? Here's my theory. Let me lay out my theory too. I won't hold you in suspense any longer. What I believe is going on is that these magi, these religious astrologers from Babylon knew the Old Testament prophecies because... The Old Testament scriptures had been deposited in Babylon in the 6th century BC when Judah was deported during the Babylonian captivity. That's how they came into contact with the words of the living God. Now, let me lay out a little little history for you. Because of Israel's rebellion, do you remember that the northern ten tribes were basically wiped out by the Assyrian invasion in 722 BC? Well, then Judah didn't fare much better because of their idolatry and going into false religion. God handed them over to the Babylonians so that you had three deportations. The first one was in 605 B.C. I think that that's where Daniel and his friends are first deported to Babylon. You had another deportation in 597 B.C. And then the final one was in 586 B.C. at the destruction of Jerusalem. So what I'm claiming is that's how the scriptures came to Babylon. That's how they came to know the prophecies that they took ironically more seriously than did the religious leaders of Israel. So what I'm going to show you is I'm going to show you a text from Daniel 1.20. And what this text is all about is the wisdom that Daniel, a believer in Yahweh, the God of Israel, had according to the king Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, at the time, Nebuchadnezzar was king over Babylon. And what you'll see is he recognizes that the Jews had more wisdom from their scriptures than did his magi. Notice it says, As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them, the them there is Daniel and his friends, ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. The king of Babylon recognized that there was greater wisdom that these Jewish men who had the scriptures than all of his wise men. Now, I want you to notice the term that I have in red, the magicians. I think that that is the profession of the magi. The same magi that show up in Matthew chapter 2, hundreds of years later, they are of this same profession. In fact, the term for magician here in the Hebrew is hartum. And the Hartum, if you do any research in a Hebrew lexicon, it'll show you that it was those who practiced astrology and interpreted omens and dreams. Well, what is that? That's the Magi. So if you take the Hartum, the magicians, combine that to the conjurers, then a third group, the counselors, the magicians, the conjurers, sometimes they're called soothsayers, and then the counselors, you had the wise men. Those three groups comprised the king's wise men. And what the text is clearly showing us is that even the king of Babylon knew that there was greater wisdom that came from Daniel the prophet and his Hebrew friends because they had the scriptures. That's the wisdom that came from God's word, all deposited in Babylon. Now, another reason I think that Magi almost certainly knew the Hebrew scriptures is because of the notoriety That Daniel received after he ended up saving the wise men from certain destruction So what I want to do is turn your attention to Daniel chapter 2 Now Daniel chapter 2 is very important because it's one of the prophecies that reveals to us The future messianic kingdom So think about at the time Nebuchadnezzar He's king over Babylon We're in the 6th century B.C. At the time, Babylon is the world's superpower. It is the United States, dare I still use that, in the year 2023, the world's superpower. That's who Babylon was. So Nebuchadnezzar is the most important king at that time of men all over the world. And God gives him providentially a dream. And the dream that he's given, he's very troubled with. And by the way, the dream is about ultimately four successive kingdoms that will come about followed by the Antichrist kingdom, followed by the Messianic kingdom that will rule and reign forevermore. It's a prophecy that we still can look at today and learn from. And it was given hundreds of years in advance to a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar is very startled by this dream. And what he demands of his wise men, remember who are in the wise men? The Magi. He demands of his Magi the soothsayers and the counselors, hey, I want the interpretation of this dream, but I won't listen to your interpretation until you tell me what the dream is. Why does he do that? Because he knows they could just lie and make something up. Well, it means this. Well, you first tell me what the dream is. Well, no man can do that of their own power. But there's a God in heaven who knows all things. And Daniel, the prophet who knows the scriptures, knows him. And so that's where we pick it up here in Daniel 2, 14, 17 through 18. Notice in verse 14, it says, Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. Stop there. Why was he going to slay the wise men of Babylon? Remember, that's the Magi. They're in that. The Magi are going to be all wiped out because they don't know what the king's dream was. So now Daniel is going to intercede because he knows the God of Israel. Verses 17 through 18, it says, Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Now listen to the reason why. So that, there's the purpose, Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men Of Babylon God the God of Israel the only true God creator of all things the one who gives us the scriptures he gives Daniel what the dream is and its interpretation and everyone in Babylon is blown away and what's more not only is Daniel and his companions saved but all of the wise men and so for the wise men including the magi the same magi profession that shows up to worship Christ in Matthew chapter 2 this is their July 4th, 1776 moment. It is the moment in which they are released from certain death. And I'm sure Daniel's notoriety absolutely grew because they knew that this man from far off saved their lives. And so that's how I think these Babylonian astrologers became enamored with the scriptures, the scriptures that belong to the wisest of men that they ever knew, the prophet Daniel. That's how they came to know. But now, this begs the question, well, if that's true, if they knew the Old Testament from Daniel and his compatriots, what Old Testament prophecy in particular was it that tipped them off to this star of the Messiah that came up in the West in Israel? Well, I think clearly the prophecy that they looked at was from Numbers 24, 17. It's the Balaam's prophecy. Now, I'm going to put up Numbers 24, 17. We don't have time to look at all of Balaam's prophecies, but Balaam in Numbers 24, 17 is giving us his fourth oracle. And it is indeed about the Messiah. Now, who is this Balaam? Ironically, Balaam was a prophet and a soothsayer from northern Mesopotamia. He was from Babylon. That's where he's from. So isn't it ironic the Magi had to rely upon Daniel, a Jew, to give them the scripture so that they could know about a prophecy that came from someone within their own community. Now, Balaam was hired by a king of Moab named Balak. Balak was very upset because the Hebrews at the time were along the Jordan River, just opposite of Jericho after their 40 years of wandering, and they're about to take over everything. They're about to kick Moab out. And so the king Balak wants Balaam this prophet and soothsayer from babylon to curse the jews but he can't why because the god of israel won't let him and so he gives these prophecies in some sense even better than he knew and notice what he says regarding the messiah he said i see him but not now i behold him but not near now, stop there for just a moment. Notice he's talking about the future. This Messiah is coming in the future, but it's not the near future. It's going to be the distant future, which is associated with the ushering in of the last days. Now, notice it continues. He says, A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through The forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Now, let me work backwards a little bit here. Notice Moab. Why would it be important that the Messiah could crush the forehead of Moab? Well, the Moabites were the prototypical enemy of God at the time. So, what this is saying is when the Messiah comes, he'll destroy the enemies of Israel. And certainly, that's what we see when Jesus Christ returns. Hamas won't have a good time of it anymore. And neither will all the nations who come after Israel. They'll be done. They'll be brought down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and destroyed by whom? By the Messiah. Notice here he's going to be a king. Why? Because he talks about this scepter which shall rise from Israel. The scepter is the symbol of a king's rule. So whoever this Messiah is going to be, he's coming from Israel and he's going to be a king. What did the Magi say? We've come to worship the king of the Jews. They knew, but the religious leaders of Israel didn't. Notice a parallel statement then is what we see in blue. A star shall come forth from Jacob. This star represents to the Jews a kingly ruler. And what these astrologers did is they looked at the data and they said, Aha, someday there's going to be a heavenly body in the sky that will tip us off as to when this king of the Jews will come from numbers 24 17 and so that begs the question was there in anything in antiquity as far as astronomy and heavenly bodies that would have tipped these astronomers off these religious astrologers that would have tipped them off to the fact that this messiah was born well there's three candidates that scholars typically look at the first one is Halley's comet Halley's Comet certainly is brilliant enough to see and to be distinguished in the night sky. The only problem with that is that it came about too early to be the star that would have guided these magi from the east. It came around 12 to 11 BC, at least four to five years too early to be the star that would have led them on. The second possibility was that it wasn't a star. It was actually a planetary conjunction, which would appear to be a star, And it would have been a planetary conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation Pisces. Now, let me explain why that would have tipped them off. And by the way, I'm not an astrologer. I don't even play one on TV. But I want to explain to you what these men would have seen in that. First of all, Jupiter. Why is Jupiter and Saturn coming together important? Well, because Jupiter was known as the royal planet. And so they would see these astrologers, well, there's a king that was born. But Saturn, the conjunction of it is Saturn represented the lands to the west that is west of Babylon. So seeing that planetary conjunction, they would have seen a king in the west had been born. Now, the constellation Pisces for the astrologer represented the last days. What does this text talk about? Well, he's coming, but he's not near. It would happen in the last days. And so many good scholars today think that that's probably the the phenomenon that they saw in the night sky. However, there is a third option. The third option was indeed a a clever one. This was a supernova, which is a stellar explosion that Chinese astronomers found. And that would have been around 5 to 4 BC. So it would have been very bright. And these Chinese astronomers who found it said that it was bright in the night sky for over 70 days. In fact, this was the favorite view of that famous astronomer Johannes Kepler. That was his favorite view. Now, you might ask, Eric, what, what's your view? Well, to be honest with you, I'm not sure. But I'll tell you a problem with all of these views. All of these views, has, I, I think, have a problem in that they don't accurately describe what these magi saw. You see, what the magi are describing is not any ordinary comet, planetary conjunction, or stellar explosion of a supernova. What they are witnessing is some heavenly body that first came up in the east, and I should say came up in the west. It was from the east that they saw it. It led them on, and then most importantly, it stalled over the very place that Christ was born. But what we can be confident of, even if we don't know exactly what they saw, it may have been provided supernaturally by God. These men knew the night sky, but more importantly, they knew the scriptures that 's what they were looking to there 's a lot of men who knew the night sky and they never found the Messiah, but not many men knew numbers twenty four seventeen balaam 's prophecy, a prophecy given by a man who came from their very area, a man who ended up being recorded in the scriptures of Daniel and his men that 's what I think really tipped them off now, what I want to show you here is I want to show you some evidence from the intertestamental period. Now, remember, the intertestamental period is that period of time between the Old Testament and the New, the 400-year window, where even Josephus said that there was no prophet in Israel. So we're talking from the time, think about the time of Malachi to the time of John the Baptist. That 400-year window, we have some intertestamental writings that show us that the Jews indeed were looking for the Messiah to be a son of David who was a star, just as the Numbers 24, 17 prophecy said, that he would be a star from Balaam's prophecy. So I'm going to show you a first writing. This comes from the Testament of the 12 patriarchs. Now, again, this is not scripture. I'm not showing it to you because I think it's inspired by God. It's not. But I'm showing it to you because this shows us a little snapshot of what the Jews were thinking in that intertestamental period. Notice again, this is from someone. Again, it's a pseudepigraphical meaning. Someone much later wrote the name down. This is a person claiming to speak for Levi, one of the 12 patriarchs. Notice it says, Then will the Lord raise up to the priesthood a new priest. Stop there. Even the Jews during the intertestamental period recognized that the Messiah was going to be a new priest. A priest who would give us atonement once and for all. Notice it says, To whom all the words of the Lord shall be revealed. And he shall execute a judgment of truth upon the earth in the fullness of days and his star shall arise in heaven as a king shedding forth the light of knowledge in the sunshine of day. Does everyone see that reference to the sunshine of day? What they believed is that when the Messiah would come on the scene of history, you would have a new day dawning. The old age characterized by sin, death and darkness would be expelled for the messianic age characterized by light, salvation, and glory. That's what they saw. And so you'll see this reference to sunshine, and also they depict him as what? A star arising in heaven. What's that from? It's from Balaam's prophecy of Numbers twenty-four seventeen. Now, I've got another quote for you. I couldn't fit it all on the screen, and I didn't want to give us such a huge PowerPoint that you couldn't fit it all in your Bible. And so I'm going to read to you another one. Remember, when we go to heaven... All pastor's material will fit on the slide. That's one of the promises. I've seen it somewhere. So let me read to you. This is, again, from the same writings during the intertestamental period called the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs. This is someone who's claiming to be of Judah. Now, why is Judah important? Because according to Genesis 49.10, Messiah would come from Judah. Listen to what this man said. He said, quote, "...and after these things shall a star arise to you from Jacob in peace." and a man shall rise from my seed like the sun s u n son of righteousness walking with the sons of men in meekness and righteousness and no sin shall be found in him first of all notice that he's depicted as what a sun s u n of righteousness why because when the messiah comes a new day dawns characterized by life righteousness and glory notice he's also referred to as what a star rising in Jacob. Where did they get that? They got it from Numbers 24:17, the same place that the magi looked to come and worship Messiah at the first Christmas. Now, are there any texts in the New Testament where we see a reference to this Balaamic prophecy of Numbers 24:17? Indeed there is. Notice here in 2 Peter 1:19. Before I read this, let me set the context. I won't get into all of 2 Peter, but if you want to make 2 Peter easy, 2 Peter is a battle between the interpretation of the apostles and the false teachers. The apostles were saying, Jesus Christ is coming back to rule and reign. The false teachers saying, no, the apostles had the wrong interpretation of the Old Testament. He's not coming back. Therefore, you can live any way you want. That was the battle. So what did Peter do to prove that the apostles had the right interpretation? He used the words of God himself on the Mount of Transfiguration. On the Mount of Transfiguration, God himself said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And he blended two important texts, Psalm 2:7 and Isaiah 42-1, which are all about the Messiah coming to rule and to reign. So to that, Peter reasons this. He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. Stop there. Does that mean that we need some existential experience in order to say, yes, our our Bibles are more sure? No, that's not Peter's point. Peter's point is they had their interpretation of the scriptures authenticated by God who spoke, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Therefore, they said, yeah, we have the prophetic word's interpretation made sure. That's the point. So notice regarding the prophetic word, He says to that, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Stop there. You and I are living in a dark age, surrounded by sin and death, rebellion against God. But notice the prophetic word is like what? It's like a lamp shining. So how are we to live? By the scriptures. He says, you do well to make sure that you pay attention to this lamp shining in a dark place until when? until the day dawns stop there the messiah is depicted as the sun sun of righteousness that comes with healing in his wings in malachi 4. he's the one who's going to bring this new messianic age characterized by light and notice it says and the morning star there's our reference to balaam's prophecy arises in your hearts and you might say wait a minute eric that sounds very subjective that sounds like when the messiah comes He's going to give us new revelation. Well, indeed, that is exactly what's going to happen. You see, all we have in the dark place now is the scriptures, and I don't belittle the scriptures. That's my whole point. This is what we need. But when the Messiah comes, the living word, he will give us a revelation that far exceeds that. In fact, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10. When the Messiah comes, we're going to be living directly under the rule and authority of, of the Word Incarnate, the God-man who reigns upon the earth. 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10. Please turn your Bibles there. 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10. Please turn your Bibles there. Notice what the Apostle Paul says here. He says, But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When does perfection comes? It comes when the Lord Jesus comes. He's going to give us even greater revelation. But for now, we have the prophetic word that are like a lamp shining in the darkness. Okay, so who is the morning star? Well, that's Jesus. And the reason he's depicted as the morning star is because he is the one who's going to bring about this new day. That's the idea. But it's an allusion, again, to Numbers 24, 17. How can we be sure that the morning star is a reference to the Messiah? Because Jesus himself says it is. Revelation 22, 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David. That comes from Isaiah 11, 1, the bright morning star. Jesus himself calls himself the fulfillment of, of Numbers twenty four seventeen. Dear brothers and sisters, clearly Balaam's prophecy from Numbers twenty-four seventeen is messianic, and it was precisely what these Gentile pagan Babylon astrologers used to come and find Jesus and worship God. So, dear ones, what about you today? Do you have a faith that's grounded in Scripture alone? If you have that, if you have the scriptures, the lamp shining in a dark place, you will find God, the forgiveness of sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you have some other plan, some other authority, some other religious guru, some different religion, some other cult, maybe you worship left-wing politics, right-wing politics, whatever it may be, if you have some other plan, you'll end up in worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator who is forever praised just like the first pagans did in the Roman Empire at that first Christmas. You'll worship and serve the creation rather than the creator if you don't have Scripture alone. That's what we learn, I think, at the first Christmas. Dear ones, turn your Bibles to Matthew 2, 9 through 10. Let's see how the story ended with the Magi. Matthew 2, 9 through 10. Astonishing. Babylonian astrologers, because they knew the scriptures, they find the Messiah. Notice here, Matthew 2, 9 through 10. It says, after hearing the king, this is King Herod, by the way. Remember, they stopped there first. They went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east, meaning when they were in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They knew from Balaam's prophecy, here he was. Matthew 2.11, notice on the screen, it says, After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. By the way, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh were very expensive. They came from Arabia. So think about it. The Babylonian Magi, first Christmas, instead of stopping by Macy's, they stop by Arabia on the way to Israel. They pick up some gifts, right? So that shows us, indeed, they were coming from the east. They go through or circumnavigate Arabia where they get these gifts. And by the way, these gifts are so expensive, it's probably what funded Joseph and Mary's travels to Egypt to spare the son. Because, remember, they didn't have a lot of money. But, dear ones, notice the big picture The Magi found the living God and worshiped him all because they knew the prophecy of Scripture. They found him by Scripture alone. Brothers and sisters, that's the message for us today. Let me give you the gospel. The gospel is revealed in the Scriptures. And it's not about the birth of some Roman emperor or any other politician, it's the good news about the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. But I always tell people the good news of the Bible, the gospel, only makes sense in light of the bad news. The scripture gives us bad news too. It gives it to us straight. What's the bad news? Well, the bad news is that all of us as humans, we've all rebelled against God in, th- in thought, word, and deed. We're all sinners, as it says in Romans three twenty three that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The news gets even worse when we consider the fact that the wages of sin is death. Not just temporary physical death, but one day eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. I can't think of any worse news. Any wor- How could you have any worse news than that you and I are cosmic rebels against the Holy One of Israel and that one day we're going to be separated in the lake of fire? That's bad. But that's precisely where the good news of the gospel shines. The good news that's revealed in the scriptures is that God sent forth the Son. The Son who existed as God and with God from all eternity at a point in time in history Through the virgin birth, he became a man so that he was truly God and truly man in one person so that he could live the perfect life that none of us could. So that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to our account. But this Jesus didn't simply live the perfect life. He also died a substitutionary death. Jesus, the just on behalf of us, the unjust in order that we might be brought to God. The idea is that Jesus, when he died, he took upon himself the full measure of God's wrath that we deserve to be punished with, and he paid it off. That is for those who believe, only for those who believe, so that you and I could have forgiveness of sins. So that's why Paul the Apostle said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The proof that jesus accomplished these things was proven by the fact that on the third day after his death He was bodily raised from the dead That resurrection proves all of jesus claims when jesus says in john fourteen six that he is the way the truth and the life that no one comes to the father But by him we can believe it why he was raised from the dead This jesus ascended into the heavens He's seated at the right hand of god from where he's coming again to bring wrath and judgment upon his enemies but a glorious resurrection and a kingdom for his people. What must we do to be right with God? Well, Jesus gives us not a, a simple suggestion or a hint, but he gives us a command. The command in Mark one fifteen is to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance has to do with the changing of our mind and a changing of direction of our whole life where we turn from serving sin self in the world and any idolatry that we're in, and we turn from that and we turn to God on his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Today, if you will trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the forgiveness of sins and the absolute assurance of everlasting life. And you know this, not because you saw some angel or you tracked some star, But you know it the same way that these magi did through the majesty of the scriptures. That's how you know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word, that it is indeed a lamp shining in a dark world. We do pray, Heavenly Father, for this year that we would be people of the book who would seek to know you only through the scriptures, that we may find Christ and worship and serve him as the Magi did. Lord, I do pray for my dear brothers and sisters. I pray for those who are ill. We pray for their healing, Lord. We pray for the restoration of so many in our congregation who are hurting. We lift them up to you, Lord. We pray for them. We ask that you restore them to us. We also pray for this new year. We pray, Lord, we'd be those who live not as just mere hearers of the word, but doers as we seek to live lives that are pleasing to you. I pray for perseverance in this difficult world, that we'd be those who live by Scripture alone, that we would live by faith alone in Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone, and again revealed in the Scriptures alone. We pray that you do that for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.